0: Chapter 18, Parts 3, 4, and 5 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter 18, Parts 3, 4, and 5 Part 3. Alexander's Return to Babylon No enterprise of Alexander was so useless, and none so fatal, as the journey through the desert of Gedrosia, the land which is now known as the Mecran. Of the inhospitable character of the country he must have had general information, but he had no idea of the hardships and terrors of the march which awaited him. His guiding motive in choosing this route was to make provisions for the safety of the fleet, to dig wells and store food at certain places along the coast. He also had in view the subjugation of the Oritae, a hardy, warlike people who dwelled in the mountains on the eastern limit of the wilderness. But if it had been only a matter of subduing the Orites, this could easily have been accomplished by an expedition from Patala, The march through the Mecran and the voyage of Nearchus were interdependent parts of the same adventure, and so timid were the mariners of those days that the voyage into unknown waters seemed far more formidable than the journey through the waste. With perhaps 30,000 men, Alexander passed the mountain wall which protects the Indus Delta, and crossing the river Arbis, he reduced the Oritai to subjection. He chose their chief village Rambachia for the foundation of a colony. The orate alexandria it was important to have stations on his projected ocean route then he descended into the waste of gedrosia no resistance met him here for there was no folk to resent his intrusion only a few miserable villages in the hills or more miserable fishing hamlets on the coast the army moved painfully through the desert of rocks and sand waterless and barren and part of the scanty provisions that the foragers obtained had to be stored on the shore for the coming of the fleet. It was often almost impossible to step through the deep sinking sand. The pitiless heat rendered night marches necessary, and those marches were frequently of undue length, owing to the need of reaching a spring of water. Alexander himself is said to have trudged on foot and shared all the hardships of the way. It was doubtless the non-combatants and camp followers who suffered most. At length the waste was crossed, and leaving the coast regions, the remnant of the army marched north to Pura, the residence of the satrapy of Gedrosia. It is said that the survivors, exhausted and dishevelled, were the smaller part of the army which had set forth from India two months before, and the losses of that terrible Gedrosian journey exceeded the losses of all Alexander's campaigns. But this is probably a heightened statement of the calamities of the march. Having rested at Pura, the king proceeded to Kerman, where he was joined by Craterus, who had suppressed the revolt in Arachosia. Presently news arrived that the fleet had reached the Kerman coast, and soon Nearchus arrived at the camp and relieved Alexander's anxiety. He too had a tale to tell of hardships and perils. The hostile attitude of the Indians, when Alexander's back was turned, had forced him to start a month before the season of the east winds, and contrary south winds kept him for twenty-four days in a haven at some distance to the west of the delta. Then a storm wrecked three of his ships near Cocala. During the rest of their voyage the seafarers were sore bestead by want of sweet water and provisions. But the king was overjoyed that they had arrived at all. Nearchus was dismissed to complete the voyage by sailing up the Persian Gulf on the Pasatigras River to Susa. Hephaeston was sent to make his way thither along the coast while Alexander himself marched through the hills by Persepolis and Pasar It was high time for Alexander to return. There was hardly a satrap, Persian or Macedonian, in any land who had not oppressed his province by violence and rapacity, and some, in the expectation that the king would never come back from the far east, had formed plots for establishing independent principalities in Kerman, in Persis, and at Susa, The most pressing business of the king was to re-establish his authority by punishing without favour or mercy the governors and officers who were found guilty of treason and oppression. Many satraps were deposed or put to death. Atrapates of Media was one of the few who had been faithful to his charge. But the military garrison of Media had not behaved so well. "'and none of Alexander's dooms at this juncture was more effective "'than the execution of two officers and six hundred soldiers "'for having plundered the temples and sepulchres of that province. "'Of all evil deeds, that perhaps which most vexed the king "'was the opening and plundering of the sepulchre of Cyrus at Passargadae. "'It was more than a common sacrilege. "'It was an outrage against the majesty of kings. "'He tortured the Medians who were the guardians of the tomb, "'but did not discover the author of the outrage.' One guilty minister fled at Alexander's approach. This was the treasurer Harpalus, who had once before been untrue to his charge, but had been forgiven and entrusted with the royal treasures of Persia. He squandered his master's money in riotous living at Babylon, and as the news of these scandals reached Alexander in India, he deemed it prudent to move westward. Taking a large sum of money, he went to Cilicia and hiring a bodyguard of six thousand mercenaries, He lived in royal state at Tarsus with Glycera, an Athenian courtesan. On Alexander's return, Tarsus was not safe, and he fled to Greece, where we shall meet him presently. Having punished with a stern hand the misrule of his satraps, Macedonian and Persian alike, Alexander began to carry out schemes which he had formed for breaking down the barrier which divides the east from the west. He had unbarred and unveiled the Orient to the knowledge and commerce of these Mediterranean peoples, but his aim was to do much more than this. It was no less than to fuse Asia and Europe in, into a homogeneous unity. He devised various means for compassing this object. He proposed to transplant Greeks and Macedonians into Asia, and Asiatics into Europe, as permanent settlers. This plan had indeed been partly realised by the foundation of his numerous mixed cities in the Far East, the second means was the promotion of intermarriages between Persians and Macedonians, and this policy was inaugurated in magnificent fashion at Susa. The king himself espoused Statira, the daughter of Darius. His friend Hephaeston took her sister, and a large number of Macedonian officers wedded the daughters of Persian grandees. The nuptials were celebrated on the same day and according to the Persian fashion. Alexander is said to have feasted nine thousand guests. Of the general mass of the Macedonians, 10,000 are said to have followed the example of their officers and taken Asiatic wives. All those were liberally rewarded by Alexander. He looked forward to the offspring of these unions as a potent instrument for the further fusing of the races. It is to be noticed that Alexander, already wedded to the princess of Sogdiana, adopted the polygamous custom of Persia, and he even married another royal lady, Parisatis, daughter of Ochus these marriages were purely dictated by policy they were meant as an example for alexander never came under the influence of women the bridles of susa were a lesson in political marriages on a vast scale but the most effective means for bringing the two races together was the institution of military service on a perfect equality with this purpose in view alexander not long after the death of darius had arranged that in all the eastern provinces the native youth should be drilled and disciplined in macedonian fashion and taught how to use the macedonian weapons in fact hellenic military schools were established in every province and at the end of five years an army of thirty thousand hellenized barbarians was at the great king's disposition at his summons this army gathered at susa and its arrival created a natural, though unreasonable, feeling of discontent among the Macedonians who divined that Alexander aimed at making himself independent of their services. His schemes for transforming the character of his army were also indicated by the enlistment of Persians, Bactrians, Aryans, and other Orientals in the Macedonian cavalry regiments, and the enrolling of nine distinguished Persians in the royal agema itself. The general dissatisfaction was not allayed by the king's liberality in defraying all the debts of the soldiers, amounting perhaps to two millions. Alexander left Susa for Ecbatana in spring. He sailed down the river Pasir Tigris to the Persian Gulf, surveyed part of the coast, and sailed up the Tigris, removing the weirs which the Persians had constructed to hinder navigation. The army joined him on the way, and he halted at Opis. Here he held an assembly of the Macedonians and formally discharged all those about ten thousand in number whose old age or wounds had rendered unfit for warfare, promising to make them comfortable for life. He fondly thought that his words would be welcomed with delight, but he was disappointed. The smouldering discontent found a voice now. The cry was raised Discharge us all, and some tauntedly added, Go and conquer with your father Ammon. The king may well have been taken aback. The men who on the banks of the Hephaestus had declared themselves worn out with war and toil and sick with yearning for their homes, were now indignant when he honourably discharged their veterans. Alexander leapt down from the platform into the shouting throng. He pointed out thirteen of the most forward rioters, and bade his Hypaspists seize them and put them to death. The rest were cowed. Amid a deep silence the king remounted the platform, and in a bitter speech he discharged the whole army. Then he retired into his palace, and on the third day summoned the Persian and Median nobles, and appointed them to posts of honour and trust which had hitherto been filled by Macedonians. The names of the Macedonian regiments were transferred to the new barbarian army. When they heard this, the Macedonians, who still lingered in their quarters, miserable and uncertain whether to go or stay, appeared before the gates of the palace. They laid down their arms submissively, and implored admission to the king's presence. Alexander came out, and there was a tearful reconciliation which was sealed by sacrifices and feasts. This dramatic incident possesses no historical importance, like the action of the troops on the Hephasis, and it is only significant in so far as it marks the last futile explosion of Macedonian sentiment against the liberal policy of the king, the final protest of men who knew they would have to acquiesce in a new order of things. The veterans started for home under the leadership of Craterus and Polypercon. They left behind the children whom Asiatic women had borne to them, the king promising to bring them up in Macedonian fashion. Craterus was to supersede Antipater as regent of Macedonia, and Antipater was to come out to Asia with a fresh supply of troops. This arrangement was desirable, on account of the estranged relations which existed between Antipater and the Queen Mother, whose letters to Alexander were always teeming with mutual accusations. The summer and the early winter were spent at the Median capital. Here a sorrow, the greatest that could befall him, befell Alexander. Three thousand professional players, or Dionysiac artists as they were called, had arrived from Greece, and Ecbatana was festive with revels and dramatic exhibitions. In the midst of this gaiety, Hephaeston fell ill, languished for seven days, and died. Alexander was plunged into despair at losing the friend of his bosom, He fasted three days, and the whole empire went into mourning. It is said that he crucified the miserable physician whose skill had been found wanting. Inconsolable the lonely monarch might well be. He could have other boon companions, other faithful counsellors and devoted servants. But he knew that he would never find another to whom he would simply be, my friend Alexander, and not my lord the king. The body was sent to Babylon to be burned. 10,000 talents were set apart for a funeral of unsurpassed magnificence. Alexander set out for Babylon towards the end of the year, and on his way he enjoyed the excitement of hunting down the Cossaeans, a hill folk of Luristan, who made brigandage their trade. The slaughter of these robbers, who were chased to their mountain nests, was described as an offering to the spirit of Hephaeston. As Alexander advanced to Babylon, ambassadors from far lands came to his camp. The Brutians, Lucanians and Etruscans, the Carthaginians and the Phoenician colonies of Spain, Celts, Scythians of the Black Sea, Libyans and Ethiopians had all sent envoys to court the friendship of the monarch who seemed already to be lord of half the earth. A feeling of dread was beginning to quiver faintly through the Western world that the conqueror of the East would presently turn the path of his progress to the West. Carthage might feel a tremor lest he should come against her as the champion of Hellenic Sicily and do unto her what he had done to the elder Tyre but from the city of Italy which was destined to destroy the power of Carthage and become the partial inheritor of Alexander's empire no ambassador came when Alexander approached within sight of Babylon he was met by a deputation of priestly stargazers who counselled him not to enter the city for their god Bel had revealed to them that it would not be for his profit He replied to the Chaldeans with a verse of Euripides, The best seer he who guesseth well, and entered at the head of his army. One of his first cares was to take measures for the rebuilding of the temple of Bel, unduly retarded by the willful neglect of the Chaldean priests, who were unwilling to appropriate their revenues for the purpose. It had been thought that their attempt to divert the king from entering Babylon may have had a motive connected with their negligence. Section 4 Preparations for an Arabian Expedition Alexander's Death Ever since the successful voyage of Nearchus, the brain of Alexander was filled with maritime enterprises. He was bent on the exploration of the northern and the southern oceans. He had already sent Heraclides and a company of shipwrights to the Hyrcanian mountains to cut wood in the forests and build a fleet to navigate the Caspian Sea and discover its supposed communication with the eastern ocean. But his more immediate and serious enterprise was the circumnavigation and conquest of Arabia. His eastern empire was not complete so long as this peninsula lay outside it. He knew of the rich spice lands of Arabia Felix but he had no conception of the vast extent of the desert which renders a land invasion so difficult and so unremunerative. The possession of this country of sand, however, was not his main object. It was only an incident in the grand range of his plans. His visit to India and the voyage of Nearchus had given him new ideas. He had risen to the conception of making the southern ocean another great commercial sea like the Mediterranean. He proposed to make the seaboard of the Persian Gulf a second Phoenicia, and he sent to the Syrian coast for seamen to colonize the shores of the mainland and the islands. He hoped to establish a regular trade route from the Indus to the Tigris and the Euphrates, and thence to the canals which connected the Nile with the Red Sea. If he had lived to accomplish this, he might have renewed the project of King Necho and hewn a waterway through the neck of the Suez. Mighty Babylon would then be in close connection with the new oceanic trade. Argosies from Alexandria or Patala could could sail into her wharves. Alexander destined Babylon to be the capital of his empire, and doubtless it was a wise choice. But its character was now to be transformed. It was to become a naval station and a centre of maritime commerce. Alexander set about the digging of a great harbour, with room for a thousand keels, and designed the buildings of shipsteads. The fleet of Nearchus sailed up the Euphrates and met the king at Babylon, but this fleet was not sufficient for the approaching enterprise. Orders had been sent to Phoenicia for the building of new warships twelve triremes, three quadriremes, four quinquaremes, and thirty of the smaller thirty oared barks. These were constructed in pieces, conveyed overland to Thapsacus on Euphrates. ...and there put together. Other ships of cypress wood were also built in Babylonia. The expedition was to set forth in the summer, and the king occupied part of the intervening time... ...in a voyage down the Euphrates to visit the Palacopas canal. The snows of winter, melting in the late spring tide... ...on the north slopes of the Armenian mountains... ...used to swell the waters of the Euphrates... ...and force it to overflow its banks in the Babylonian plain about ninety miles below babylon a canal had been dug to drain the superfluous waters into the marshes which stretched for leagues and leagues southwestward. in the autumn the canal was closed by a sluice to prevent the water leaving its bed but the sluice was out of working order and alexander devised a better place connecting the canal with the river at a different point he sailed up the canal lost his way for a while among the swamps and selected a new site for a new city ...whose building was immediately begun. We may guess that the city was meant to be the first of a string of fortresses... ...stretching across the desert from Babylonia to the Red Sea. On his return to Babylon, he found some new western troops... ...which had arrived from Caria and Lydia... ...and a body of 20,000 Persians who had been recruited by Pucestus. He proceeded to carry out a sweeping military reform... ...at which his mind must have been working for some time past... It was nothing less than a complete transformation of his father's phalanx, in fact of the Hellenic hoplite system. Alexander had done much with the well-drilled phalanx, but his experience had taught him that it was far from being the ideal infantry. The advantages of its sheer weight and solid strength were more than counterbalanced by its want of mobility. Alexander invented a means of increasing the mobility with as little as possible diminution of the weight. He inserted the fresh body of 20,000 Persians into the Macedonian Phalanx in the following way. The old depth of the file, namely sixteen men, was retained, but of these only four were Macedonian pikemen, the men of the first three ranks and the hindmost men of all. The twelve intervening places, the fourth to the fifteenth ranks, were filled by Persians lightly armed with their native bows and javelins. This new Phalanx required a new kind of tactics, which must have consisted in opening out the ranks, so as to allow the archers and javelin men to deploy into their intervals and discharge their missiles, and then closing up again, in order to advance in a serried mass, each file bristling with three, no longer with five spear-points. It was a thoroughly original idea, this combination of heavy and light troops into a tactical unity, but it would need all the skill of the great master to bring it to perfection. The strange thing is to find Alexander introducing this new system, which implied a complete change in the drill, on the very eve of his setting forth on the Arabian expedition. We are tempted to think that he had already made experiments, perhaps with that army of 30,000 Orientals, drilled in Macedonian fashion, which had come to him at Susa. The tactical reform had also its political bearings. It was another step in the direction of fusing the Macedonian and Persian together, and marrying Europe with Asia there was one thing, very near to the king's heart, still to be accomplished before he set out, the funeral of Hephaeston. The oracle of Ammon had been consulted touching the honours which should be paid to the dead man, and had ordained that he might be honoured as a hero. In accordance therewith, Alexander ordered that chapels should be erected to Hephaeston in Egyptian Alexandria and other cities. Never were obsequies so magnificent as those which were held at Babylon. The funeral pyre, splendidly decked with offerings, towered to the height of two hundred feet. All was in readiness at length for the expedition to the south. On a day in early June, a royal banquet was given in honour of Nearchus and his seamen, shortly about to start on their oceanic voyage. As Alexander was retiring to his chamber at a late hour, a friend named Medius carried him off to spend the rest of the night in a bout of hard drinking. On the morrow he slept long, In the evening he dined with Medius, and another carousal followed. After a bath and a meal in the early hours of the morning, he fell into a feverish sleep. On awakening, he insisted upon preparing the daily sacrifices according to his wont, but the fever was still on him. He could not walk, and was carried to the altar on a couch. He spent the day in bed, actively engaged with Nearchus in discussing the expedition, which he fixed for four days hence. In the cool of the evening he was conveyed to the river, and rode across to a garden-villa at the other side. For six days he lay here in high fever, but regularly performing the sacrifices, and daily perforce deferring the departure of the expedition for another and yet another day. Then his condition grew worse, and he was carried back to the palace, where he won a little sleep, but the fever did not abate. When his officers came to him, they found him speechless. The disease became more violent, and a rumour spread among the Macedonian soldiers that Alexander was dead. They rushed clamouring to the door of the palace, and the bodyguards were forced to admit them. One by one they filed past the bed of their young king, but he could not speak to them. He could only greet each by slightly raising his head and signing with his eyes. Pukestas and some others of the companions passed the night in the temple of Serapis, and asked the god whether they should convey the sick man into the temple, if haply he might be cured there by divine help. A voice warned them not to bring him, but to let him remain where he lay. He died on a June evening, before the thirty-third year of his age was fully told. Such is the punctilious and authentic account of the last illness of Alexander, as it was recorded in the court diary but it is not sufficient to enable us to discover the precise nature of the fatal disease the untimely deaths of sovereigns at particular junctures have often exercised an appreciable influence on the course of events but no such accident has diverted the paths of history so manifestly and utterly as the death of alexander twelve years had sufficed him to conquer western asia and to leave an impress upon it which centuries would not obliterate and yet his work had only been begun Many plans for the political transformation of his Asiatic empire had been initiated, plans which reveal his originality of conception, his breadth of grasp, his firm hold of facts, his faculty for organization, his wonderful brain power. But all these schemes and lines of policy needed still many years of development under the master's shaping and guiding hand. The unity of the realm, which was an essential part of Alexander's conception, disappeared upon his death the empire was broken up among a number of hard-headed macedonians capable and practical rulers but without the higher qualities of the founder's genius they maintained the tolerant hellenism which he had initiated his lessons had not been lost upon them and thus his work was not futile the toils of even those twelve marvellous years smoothed the path for roman sway in the east and prepared the ground for the spread of an universal religion It is impossible to write the history of Alexander so as to produce a true impression of his work, because in the records which we have, the general and soldier fills the whole stage and the statesman is, as it were, hustled out. The details of administrative organization are lost amidst the sounding of trumpets and the clashing of spears, but it is the details of administration and political organization which the historical inquirer craves to know and especially the constitution of the various new-founded cities in the Far East, those novel experiments which set the Macedonian, Greek, and Oriental inhabitants side by side. By their silence on these matters, the companions of Alexander, who wrote memoirs about him, unwittingly did him a wrong, and thence there has largely prevailed an unjust notion that he only knew and only cared how to conquer. It is hardly open to question that this brilliant lord of well-trained myriads would have advanced to the conquest of the West, nor can we affect a doubt that, succeeding where one of his successors failed, he would have annexed Sicily and the great Hellas, conquered Carthage, and overrun the Italian peninsula. To apprehend what his death meant for Europe, we need not travel farther in our speculations. To the Indies he would certainly have returned and carried out with fresh troops that project of visiting the valley of the Ganges which had been frustrated by his weary army. As it was, he had left no lasting impression upon Indian civilization, and his successors soon abandoned their hold upon the Punjab. It is needless to add that if Alexander had lived another quarter of a century, he would have widened the limits of geographical knowledge. The true nature of the Caspian Sea would have been determined, the southern extent of the Indian peninsula would have been discovered, and an attempt would have been made to repeat the Phoenician circumnavigation of Africa. Nor could Alexander have failed, in his advanced position on the Jaxartes. To have learned some facts about the vast extension of the asiatic continent to the east and north and the curiosities of chinese civilization his sudden death was no freak of fate or fortune it was a natural consequence of his character and deeds into thirteen years he had compressed the energies of many lifetimes if he had been content with the duties of a general and a statesman Laborious and wearing though those duties would have been both to body and to brain, his singularly strong constitution would probably have lasted him for many a long year. But the very qualities of his brilliant temper which most endeared him to his fellows, a warrior's valour and a love of good fellowship, were ruinous to his health. He was covered with scars, and he had probably never recovered from that terrible wound which had been the price of his escapade at Multan. SPARING OF HIMSELF NEITHER IN BATTLE NOR AT THE SYMPOSION, HE WAS DOOMED TO DIE YOUNG. SECTION 5 GREECE UNDER MACEDONIA The tide of the world's history swept us away from the shores of Greece, and, borne breathlessly along from conquest to conquest in the triumphant train of the Macedonian, we could not pause to see what was happening in the little states which were looking with mixed emotions at the spectacle of their own civilization making its way over the earth. "'Alexander's victory at the gates of Issus and his ensuing supremacy by sea "'had taught many of the Greeks the lesson of caution. "'The Confederacy of the Isthmus had sent congratulations and a golden crown to the conqueror, "'and when, a twelve month later, the Spartan king Aegis, "'a resolute man without any military ability, renewed the war against Macedonia, "'he got no help or countenance outside the Peloponnesus. "'Some hot spirits at Athens proposed to support the movement.' But the people were discreetly restrained, not only by Phocion and Demades, but by Demosthenes himself. Aegis induced the Arcadians, except Megalopolis, the Achaeans, except Pelini, and the Eleans, to join him, and having mercenary troops besides, he got together a considerable army. It was easy to gain a few successes before the regent of Macedonia, then occupied with a rising in Thrace, had time to descend upon the Peloponnesus. The chief object of the Allies was to capture Megalopolis and the federal capital of Arcadia was in the strange position of being besieged by the Arcadian Federates. Antipater, as soon as the situation in Thrace set him free, marched southward to the relief of Megalopolis and easily crushed the Allies in a battle fought hard by. Aegis fell fighting and there was no further resistance. Sparta sent up hostages to Alexander who accorded the Conquered Greeks easy terms. So long as Darius lived, many of the Greeks cherished secret hopes that that fortune might yet turn against Alexander, and maintained clandestine intrigues with Persia. But on the news of his death, such hopes expired, and tranquillity prevailed in Hellas. It was not till Alexander's return from India that anything happened to trouble the peace. And in the meantime, Greece was experiencing a relief which she had needed for two generations. A field had been opened to her superfluous children, who were pouring by thousands or rather tens of thousands, into Asia, to find careers, if not permanent homes. For Athens, the twelve years between the fall of Thebes and the death of Alexander were an interval of singular well-being. The conduct of public affairs was in the hands of the two most honorable statesmen of the day, Phocion and Lycurgus. Supported by the orator Demades, Phocion was able to dissuade the people from embarking in any foolhardy enterprises, and Demosthenes was sufficiently clear-sighted not to embarrass, but when needful to support the policy of peace. Phocion probably did not grudge him the signal triumph which he won over his old rival, Aeschines, for this triumph had only a personal and not a political significance. Shortly before Philip's death, Ctesiphon had proposed to honour Demosthenes both for his general services to the state and especially for his liberality in contributing from his private purse towards the repair of the city walls by crowning him publicly in the theatre with a crown of gold. The council had passed a resolution to this effect, but Eschenes lodged an accusation against the proposer, whose motion technically exposed him to the graphi paranomon, and consequently the council's resolution was not brought before the people. The matter remained in abeyance for about six years Neither party venturing to bring it to an issue, Aschines, by following up his indictment of Ctesiphon by forcing him to bring it into court. The collapse of the attempt of Aegis to defy Macedonia probably encouraged Ascines to face his rival at last. In a speech of the highest ability, Ascines reviewed the public career of Demosthenes to prove that he was a traitor and responsible for all the disasters of Athens. The reply of Demosthenes, a masterpiece of splendid oratory, captivated the judges and not winning one-fifth part of their votes, left Athens and disappeared from politics. It is not unfair to say that it was Demosthenes the orator, not Demosthenes the statesman, who convinced the Athenian judges. Apart from his speech on the crown, which has been described as the funeral oration on Greek freedom, Demosthenes fell almost silent during these years. He saw that public action on his part would be useless, but perhaps he worked underground. In these two speeches, in the matter of the crown, the most interesting passage is where Eschines reflects on the changes which had recently come to pass over the face of the earth. We want to know what the Greeks thought of these startling changes, what they felt as they saw the fashion of the world passing, and the things which had seemed of great weight and worth in Hellas becoming of small account. Eschines thus utters their surprise. All manner of strange events, utterly unforeseen, have befallen in our lifetime. Our extraordinary experiences will seem to those who come after us like a curious tale of marvels the king of the persians who dug the canal through athos who bridged the hellespont who demanded earth and water from the greeks who dared in his letters to declare i am the lord of all the world from the rising to the setting of the sun is at this moment struggling not for dominion over other men but to save his own life and limb thebes even thebes our neighbour has been snatched in the space of a single day, out of the midst of Hellas, justly, for her policy was false. But assuredly she was rather blinded by a heaven-sent infatuation than misled by human perversity. And the poor Lacedaemonians, who once lifted themselves up to be leaders of the Greeks, must now go up to Alexander as hostages and throw themselves upon the mercy of the potentate whom they wronged. Our own city, once the asylum of the Greek world, whither all men looked for help, has now ceased to strive for the leadership of the Greeks, for the very ground of her home is in danger. The Macedonian Empire had not yet lasted long enough to turn the traffic of the Mediterranean into new channels, and Athens still enjoyed great commercial prosperity. She sent a colony to some unknown place on the Hadriatic seaboard to be a base of protection against the Etruscan rovers, the big menacing eyes of whose pirate crafts were a constant terror to traders in those seas and although peace was her professed policy she did not neglect to make provision for war in case a favourable opportunity should come round in the revolution of circumstance for regaining her sovereignty on sea money was spent on the navy which is said to have been increased to well nigh four hundred galleys and on new ship sheds the handsome marble storehouse for the hanging ship gear designed by the architect philo was completed at the harbour of zea It was expressly provided that the cases which lined the walls and pillars of the cool triple-aisled arcade should be open in order that those who pass through may be able to see all the gear that is in the gear store the man who was mainly responsible for this naval expenditure was lycurgus it is significant of the spirit of athens at this time that while phocion and demades were the most influential men in the assembly the finances were in the charge of a statesman who had been so signally hostile to macedonia that alexander had demanded his surrender in recent years considerable changes had been made in the constitution of the financial offices eubulus had administered as the president of the theoric fund but now we find the control of the expenditure in the hands of a minister of the public revenue who was elected by the people and held office for four years from one panatheniac festival to another Lycurgus was entrusted with this post for twelve years for the first period in his own name for the two succeeding periods his activity was cloaked under the names of his son and another nominal minister. He acted, of course, in conjunction with the council, but the influence of the more permanent and experienced minister upon that annual body was inevitably very great. The new system, it is evident, was a distinct improvement on the old. It was much better that the administration of the revenue should be managed by one competent statesman, unhampered by colleagues, and that his tenure of office should not be limited to a year. The post practically included the functions of a minister of public works, and the ministry of Lycurgus was distinguished by building enterprises. He constructed the Panathenaic Stadium on the southern bank of the Ilissus. He rebuilt the Lyceum Gymnasium, where in these years the philosopher Aristotle used to take his morning and evening walks, teaching his peripatetic disciples. It lay somewhere to the east of the city, under Mount Lycabetus but the most memorable work of lycurgus was the reconstruction of the theatre of dionysus it was he who built the rows of marble benches climbing up the steep side of the Acropolis, as we see them to-day and his original stage-buildings can be distinguished amidst the ruins from the mass of later additions and improvements he canonized as it were the three great tragic poets aeschylus sophocles and euripides by setting up their statues in the theatre and by carrying a measure that that copies of their work should be officially prepared and preserved by the state. In connection with the prosperity of Athens and her large public outlay, it is important to observe that the silver mines of Lorium, which had been closed when the Spartans occupied Decaeleia and had been neglected, for want of capital and enterprise, throughout the whole first half of the 4th century, had been reopened and were working vigorously. They seemed to have been managed largely on a new principle, namely by private companies. The historian Xenophon had written a pamphlet on the subject of the mines as a neglected source of revenue, and it would be interesting to know whether the revival of the industry is to be ascribed directly or indirectly to the influence of his exhortations. No sign of the times, which followed the defeat of Cerenia, is more striking than the framing of a new system for drilling the young burghers of Athens in the duties of military life. The training began when the youth, having completed his eighteenth year, came of age and was enrolled in the register of his deem and it lasted for two years during these two years the young citizen was known as an ephibos and might not appear either as a prosecutor or defendant in the law courts except for a few cases expressly specified the general supervision over all the attic ephibi was committed to a marshal cosmites who was elected by the athenian assembly and under him were ten masters of discipline sophronistae one for each tribe the institution had a religious consecration the first act in the service of the ephibi was solemnly to go round the temples under the conduct of the masters. Then they served for a year on duty in the guard-houses at Monnica and along the coast, receiving regular military instruction from special drill-masters who trained them in the exercises of the hoplites and taught them how to shoot with bow and javelin and to handle artillery. The ephibi at each tribe ate together at barrack messes which were managed by the masters of discipline. At the end of the first year, they appeared before an assembly in the theatre, and when they had made a public display of their proficiency in the art of warfare, each received from the city a shield and a spear. The second year was spent in patrolling the frontiers of the land and guarding the prisons. The garrison and, and patrol duties had always devolved upon the young men of Attica, but they were now organised into a new and thorough scheme of discipline. A mild Attic approach to the stone system of Sparta it almost strikes one as a conscious effort to arrest the decline of the citizen army in the face of the encroachments of the mercenary system the ephibi in their characteristic dress the dark mantle and broad-brimmed hat are a graceful feature of athenian life and art from this time forward it is significant that the whole revival stimulated by the disaster of ceronea was marked by a religious character Lycurgus who belonged to the priestly family of the Aetiobutads was a sincerely pious man and impressed upon his administration the stamp of his own devotion never for a hundred years had there been seen at Athens such a manifestation of zealous public concern for the worship of the gods the two chief monuments of the lycurgan epoch the panathenaic stadium and the theater of dionysus were it must always be remembered religious not secular buildings Thus Athens discreetly attended to her material well-being and courted the favour of the gods, and the only distress which befell her was the dearth of corn. But on the return of Alexander to Susa, two things happened which imperilled the tranquillity of Greece. Alexander promised the Greek exiles, there were more than twenty thousand of them, to procure their return to their native cities. He sent Nicanor to the great congregation of Hellas at the Olympian festival to order the states to receive back their banished citizens. A general reconciliation of parties was a just and politic measure, but it could be objected that, by the terms of the confederation of Corinth, the Macedonian king had no power to dictate orders to the confederates in the management of the domestic affairs. Only two states objected, Athens and Aetolia, and they objected because, if the edict were enforced, they would be robbed of ill-gotten gains. The Aetolians had possessed themselves of Orenidae and driven out its Acanian owners, by Alexander's edict, the rightful inhabitants would now return to their own city and the intruders be dislodged. The position of Athens in Samos was similar. The Samians would now be restored to their own lands and the Athenian settlers would have to go. Both Athens and Aetolia were prepared to resist. Another desire was expressed by Alexander at the same time, which was readily acquiesced in. He demanded that the Greeks should recognize his divinity. Sparta is reported to have replied indifferently. WE ALLOW ALEXANDER TO CALL HIMSELF A GOD IF HE LIKES. THERE WAS NOT A SENSIBLE MAN AT ATHENS WHO WOULD HAVE THOUGHT OF OBJECTING. EVEN THE BITTEREST PATRIOTS WOULD HAVE ALLOWED HIM TO BE THE SON OF ZEUS OR POSEIDON OR WHOMEVER HE CHOSE. IF THE GREEKS OF CORINTH LOOKED UP TO ALEXANDER AS THEIR CHIEFTAIN AND PROTECTOR, AND THIS WAS ACTUALLY THEIR POSITION IN REGARD TO HIM, THERE WAS NO INCONGRUITY IN THE IDEA OF OFFICIALLY ACKNOWLEDGING HIS DIVINITY. Ever since the days in which an Homeric king was honoured as a god by the people, there was nothing offensive or outlandish to a Greek ear in predicating godhood of a revered sovereign or master. Divine honours had been paid to Lysander, and the Greeks, in complying with Alexander's desire, did not commit themselves more than the pupil of the academy who erected an altar to his master Plato. End of chapter 18, Part 3, 4 and 5